How you doing, listeners? Good afternoon. My name is Matt Zeller, and I'm long-winded. So our podcast today is going to unfortunately cover at least two of your normally scheduled episodes. Yeah, okay. So sort of, uh, we'll do like a proper intro, like on this episode of Longest Four. Or do we not need that? Are you recording already? All right. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Longest War. This time we're sitting down with Matt Zeller, executive director of No One Left Behind. And then I want to say something to the effect of, um, you know, a lot of headlines in the news lately about immigrants and refugees coming from predominantly Muslim countries, Iraq being one of those countries. Several of those individuals that are trying to make their way over the United States are former Army and Navy and Air Force Marine interpreters that work for the, the military. And they've been turned around just like everybody else has. We treat them as our own. And this organization is working tirelessly to make sure those guys aren't forgotten that they're, they have a chance to, to make it over here. Something to that effect. So I can just freestyle a little bit. Will we start part two? It'll be like after Janice has saved his life, probably. I feel like that makes sense because we get the military story. And then part two is like once Janice gets here and all that. Because I feel like that would be a nice progression because I could say something like... Uh, this time we finish up our conversation with Matt Zeller. Try that again, but to put a little more color into it. Like uh, I would say, uh, hey, welcome back to this episode of Longest War. If you were here last time, you heard an amazing conversation that we had with Matt Zeller. He runs a nonprofit dedicated to saving the lives of our interpreters in Iraq and Afghanistan. All right. Four months later, he calls me up. And he says, brother, I'm on the Taliban's hit list. There's a bounty on my head. It's pretty sizable, about $50,000 at that point. And he said, they've got a capture kill team here in Ghazni looking for me. They've got my picture, my phone numbers. They know, the, the, the Afghan army is telling me that the only way they can guarantee my safety is if I stay on the American base where I currently live, which means I can't go on a mission here, which means I, I got to get out. And I said, okay, what, what do you want to do? And he goes, well, I'm going to get myself transferred to Kabul. But do you think maybe we could look into that visa? And I said, sure. So he got transferred to Kabul the next day. And he thought, okay, this is good. I'm safe for a while. Uh, you know, Kabul at this point was the safest place you could be in Afghanistan. The, the entire government was based there. Our, our, our NATO headquarters was there. All of our senior military and government personnel were there. I mean, if anyone was going to be safe anywhere in Afghanistan, it was in Kabul. The funny thing about the Taliban is when they want you dead, they don't just give up. You know, they're persistent sons of bitches. And about a year and a half later, they had found him in Kabul. It was so bad that they had a hit team that apparently lived outside of the front gate of the base he was based on, waiting for him to come home to his family so that he would A, lead them back to the rest of his family, and then B, they could kill not just him, but his wife and his kids. When the Americans he was working for learned of the plot on his life, they came to him and they said, Janice, you can't go home anymore, and I would put your family in hiding. For the next two years which was the first two years of his daughter's life, he didn't go home. They lived in hiding, and he didn't go home, even though they lived like a mile and a half away from where he was working. He didn't go home at all. He lived on that military base, and he was in charge of the 300 other translators who lived there to support the massive U.S. mission that was attached to this base. He assigned all of them to their various missions. He did all the senior translation for senior officials on the base to include, at one point, 12 U.S. senators, including Senator John McCain. This is my way of saying he had ample opportunity to harm and hurt us should he ever have been wanted to. He was given all the opportunity in the world. I mean, it, heck, we trusted him at one point so much we armed him. 
<laughs> and then ask them to go on patrol with us, which I think, by the way, is the most extreme form of vetting you can ask of a person who wants to come to this country is to stand with an American in combat. Two years after, into this, it's now 2013, so we're four years in, we're still waiting for his visa. When he contacts me and he says, look, brother, here's the deal. I'm the senior translator on this base, which means I just got notified we're all getting laid off. Kidding me, you're getting laid off? He goes, yeah, we're all getting laid off in October. You've got till October to make good on that promise. So at that point, I said, Janice, I think the only thing we have left that we can do, I've tried every avenue of, of approach I know, we have to embarrass the government into doing the right thing, which means we need to take this to the press, which means you're going to get a target on your back. You okay with that? He goes, brother, if you don't do this by October, I'm a dead man because the Taliban know that the Americans are leaving this base. They've already gone to the Afghan army and told them to give told the Afghan army to give them the, t the translators who live on the base. And the Afghan army have all told us that if we don't leave with the Americans, they're going to give us to the Taliban. So he's like, I got to be out of this base by October because we were leaving. It was the drawdown. There were no replacement units coming and Afghans don't need other Afghans to talk to other Afghans, right? So I started contacting everyone I knew and eventually what ended up happening was as I started a change.org petition and that petition got picked up by Yahoo News that ran an article on him on the first Friday of September in 2013. And that petition at that point had a couple hundred signatures by that Friday morning, but by Sunday evening had well over 100,000. And then a miracle happened. He got his visa, and then we thought we were home free. Unfortunately, the Taliban read the U.S. news, and they saw that he had received his visa, and so they did the one thing available at that point. They really wanted to kill him, which means they had to keep him in the country. They, they bought a throwaway cell phone, and we have a, a tip line at the embassy in Kabul, and they called this tip line from a throwaway cell phone, and they said, actually, this guy's worked for us for the last eight years. Fooled you, and they hung up the phone. Now, you have to understand is to get one of these visas, they have to clear three hurdles. The first is they have to have served at least a year with us, and then they have to get someone like you or I to write them a letter of recommendation to nominate them. They have to actually get nominated by somebody either in the U.S. military or a civilian government official. From there... They have to prove to the State Department that they're in duress, meaning someone's actively trying to harm them and their family because of that service. And then if they, can, if they can clear those two hurdles, they have to pass the most comprehensive national security background investigation that our country can possibly muster. It's, when they talk about extreme vetting, this is it. Every single component of the intelligence communities, the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, the DIA, which is the Defense Intelligence Agency, the Department of Homeland Security, or DHS, so on and so forth, they all have to do their own independent investigation on every single person on the application. So let's say Janice applies for his, himself, his wife, and his four-year-old son and his two-year-old daughter. Even the kids get investigated. The CIA does their own investigation on everyone on the application. The FBI does their own investigation. They don't coordinate between each other. The decision to let them in the country must be unanimous. So even if one agency says no, like, believe it or not, the D Drug Enforcement Agency, the DEA, gets a say in this. And let's say the DEA decides no, but even everyone else has said yes, doesn't matter. That person is barred for entry forever, and they're put on the no-fly list forever. If I'm ISIS, the Taliban, or Al-Qaeda, this is not the visa program I'm sneaking people in through, Right. right? So he had to pass all of that just to have been issued a visa. So you can you understand my absolute anger and the absurdity of all of this when the State Department told me that for reasons for na of national security, they were revoking his visa. They had been looking into his background 
four years found he was nothing short of an American hero, right? Had ample opportunity to do irreparable harm to this country, and yet in every one of those moments chose to save the American he was defending or provide the best service he possibly could. And after all that investigation, felt confident enough to give him a visa, and then they received one anonymous phone call from a throwaway cell phone, an unverifiable, untraceable source, and that's enough to just the knee-jerk reaction is to revoke his visa. And the minute he did that, they did that, I decided I really had to go to war. And so I got members of Congress involved. I called every media outlet I could. And a month later, his visa had been reinstated. He had been polygraphed twice by the CIA downrange, but he eventually got his, his visa reinstated. And he came to this country on October, October 29th, 2013. And that was basically the day that our organization, No One Left Behind, got founded. I was picking him up at the airport. There was a camera crew from CBS there to, to cover the whole moment. What they didn't see, and I think the real special moment of that story is what happened after the cameras turned off. As they were packing up, getting ready to leave, they had gotten our big reunion moment, him getting off the plane and two of us seeing each other for the first time in five years. They didn't see me turn to him and say, hey, Janice, look, man, I don't know where you're going to stay, but uh, for the next couple of days, you can stay with my family and I until we find you a place to live. I said to him at that point, why don't we get the rest of your luggage and let's get you home. And he turned and he pointed to these four small suitcases, the size of carry-on bags. And he said, um, brother, this is all we were allowed to bring. One suitcase per person. So one for himself, his wife, his son, and his daughter, four in total. They had to be under 50 pounds and fit in an overhead flight bin. And you realize at that moment, they didn't come with perishable items that they're going to sell or bars of gold or large sums of cash. They, they came with the family Quran the only black and white photo of his father that exists in life. The tangible items of their heritage that they're never going to sell, despite how difficult it might be, because these are the only items of their heritage that they can pass on to their children. The only physical connections to the world that they've left behind forever. And when I realized that they didn't even have clothes for winter, let alone bedding or anything, and I'm not a wealthy guy, and that somehow I was going to have to come up with an additional month's rent payment foreseeably for the next year or so. I, I grabbed the CBS News reporter and I said, look, I'm going to start a GoFundMe page and see if I can't raise this guy some money. Can you help? She said, sure, we'll let folks know about it in the broadcast. Three days later, I had found him a modest two-bedroom apartment down the road from me in uh, Alexandria, Virginia, and I had been able to furnish it through the kind, generous you know, support of friends and family in the D.C. area. And I had decided to go over his home for our chai, our nightly cup of tea, as we had decided to carry on the tradition from Afghanistan and he was so proud because he was going to host me for the first time in his house. What he didn't know was that I had come over with a check. The check was for $35,000 because that's how much money was in the account three days later from complete strangers all around the country had seen this broadcast and wanted to help out. So I go over to his house and I sit him down. And I say, all right, Janice, I have a gift here from the American people. Can, yeah. you, can, you, can you follow back? Because uh, this was in October, right? Can you, yeah. can you just go through real quickly about how it was Halloween? Oh, sure. So uh, it actually was Halloween. And I had forgotten to tell him it was Halloween or what Halloween was. So when I get back to his house, he opens up the door, he welcomes me and he goes, brother, you didn't tell me there are so many beggars in America, but why do you make them send their children in weird costumes to my door? And I realized, oh my God, it's Halloween. I haven't explained to him what Halloween is. And I said, Janice, what, what do you mean? What's been going on? He goes, well, all these children keep coming to my door and they ask for food. They say, candy, candy. But we don't have candy. So I said, oh my God, what have you been giving them? And he goes, well, and he pulls out a wad of $1 bills, which is all the money he has in the, in the world. 
He goes, I didn't have any food, so I've been giving them $3 each. They won't stop coming now. I said, well, of course not. You're the best house in the neighborhood. You're, you're giving out actual cash. Mind you, this is a guy who has nothing, and he's giving away what he has because he thought these people were less fortunate than he, which ought to tell you something about these people and the culture that, that they represent and the value that they would add to our country. Well, I sit him down on his couch and I say, Janice, I, I have a gift for you. And I pull out this check and I said, you have to understand this is from the American people. And it's in, it's in thanks in exchange for your eight years of frontline combat service. See, that's the difference between him and I, right? I won the birth lottery. He didn't. Had he been born here, we'd be celebrating him as an eight-tour combat veteran. When, when I went home, he went on to the next mission with the next unit, right? I went home back to my cushy life in America. He, he went on with the war effort. If anybody's a veteran, it's him. And yet, because of where he placed in the birth lottery, he doesn't get to go to the VA. He's been blown up six times. He's got PTS. He's got TBI. He doesn't get to go to talk to anybody at the VA about his experiences. If I walk into a Walmart right now and show my, the Walmart my honorable discharge, corporate policy is I'm given a job without having an interview. Sight unseen. Honorable discharge, automatic job at Walmart. Janice walks in, and if he doesn't buy something, they ask him to leave because he's not legally a veteran, which is the biggest fucking crock of shit I've ever heard. That guy is a veteran. So you have to understand, I, I pull out this check and I say, brother, you're a veteran, the American people agree. And so they've risen to the occasion and they have funded your home for the next year. This money is going to pay for your food and your rent for the next year. Now, this is a guy who was born in 1978. The Soviets invaded his country when he was a year old. All he's ever known is death and destruction. He remembers the day the Taliban showed up and took over his village in 1996. He was outside playing with his cousins when a bunch of dudes on pickup trucks showed up, jumped off the back of the trucks, and started beating the shit out of people with, with, with switches and sticks and stuff. They fled through Pakistan that night. They spent two days climbing the Hindu Kush, which are the foothills of the Himalayas. These are mountains that go up to 18,000 feet without provisions, without equipment, just with the clothes on their backs and whatever they could carry with them, 22 members of his family, just to sneak into Pakistan. They lived in a one-room shack for seven years, all 22 of them. He's had nothing but hardship in his life. And yet he's as close to a saint as I've ever met because when I tried to give him this money, he thought about accepting it for maybe all half of a heartbeat. And he says, brother, I can't take this. I said, well, what do you mean you can't take the money? There's not a refund button. What, what do you want me to do with it? And then he got really serious and he looked me right in the eye and he said, well, what about Hassan and Latif and Jamshid and Maiwand and Khabib? He was naming off all the other translators who were still back on our base in Afghanistan at that point. I said, what about them? And he goes, don't they deserve to be here too? He had a really good point. They did. So I said, brother, what would you have me do with this money? And he said, can we use it to start an organization to do for them what you've done for me, to help them get their visa when they arrive here, find them a place to live and furnish it, you know, free of charge to them. And I would later go on to get him a job and a car. And so that was the birth of No One Left Behind. We're now in eight cities. We've been in existence now for three and a half years. And in that time, we've helped do exactly that. Get people their visa, find a place to live. We fund it for 90 days, meaning we pay the rent for three months. We fully furnish it at no cost to them, which... Um, our standard is simple. If I won't put a piece of furniture in my house, it won't go in yours. We're very picky on what we accept. Um, we'll outright buy them a car and insure it for six months and get them a job as well as an American family or friend to 
essentially mentor and guide them to be their first friend for that first year here. We've done this now for over 4,000 people in the last three and a half years. And our goal is to do this for the remaining 35 to 40,000 people that still remain in Iraq and Afghanistan that we want to get here within the next seven years. Why is seven years so critical? Well, two reasons. First off, the enemy gets a vote in all of this. It's not us who are trying to get these people. It's the very people we ask them to help us fight. While we're trying to save them, they're trying to murder them. And it's not a polite bullet to the back of the head. When they catch up with these people, they, they tend to torture them on camera along with their family members and usually make them watch them torture and rape their family members before they torture and kill them. Um, they film all these things. And when they catch up these people, they often make them confess on camera to have been former supporters of our military efforts and former translators. And what they do is they get them to say, look, this is what happens to those who work with the Americans. And then they take these snuff films and they send them to places like Yemen, to Libya, to Mali, to Syria. Heck, they still send them around in Iraq and Afghanistan. And the whole point is to convince people who might want to one day work with us because they see us as the good guys that if they chose to do that, it's a death sentence. And that's the whole point of this. That's why this is the so what of all of this, right? Is that if that becomes the prevailing narrative of the United States around the world, that working with us is in fact a death sentence and that we don't honor and keep our promises and our commitment to people, we're done. We won't have local allies in future conflicts. And if that had been the prevailing narrative I had encountered, I'd be dead and not talking to you right now. The only reason I'm sitting here in front of you is because Janice believed when he worked, signed up to work with the Americans that we honor our our promises that we keep our end of the bargain, that we would keep our word and take care of him and his family if necessary, if this didn't work out as planned. Because without the Terps, we're almost literally deaf and mute. Not just We can't understand anything anyone's saying to us and we can't communicate with him in any sort of way. He was my eyes and ears and my voice to the Afghan people and in return their voice to me. I would argue he was more important to my survival than my weapon. Sure. Sure. (laughs) Period, the end. You know, when he, when we started this, it was a labor of love. We were just trying to save the, the remaining like six guys, right? And then what ended up happening was just two months into this, we had been doing this sort of this publicity tour and we had all this money that had come in, about $50,000 at this point that we didn't know what to do. When uh, uh, Janice and I were on our way to meet up with a, uh, a reporter who was covering us for dinner and it was going to be this guy's first time to ever actually get to meet Janice. And uh, what ended up happening was, was on the way to dinner, Janice gets a phone call from Ajmal. Now, Ajmal had been Secretary Robert Gates' personal translator and had fought seven years in the Korangal Valley. If any of your listeners have ever seen the documentary Restrepo, you understand the combat environment that that was. So you can understand- they don't fuck around in the Korangal. That's the big boys. You can understand seven years is impossible odds. And yet, somehow how you made it. Ajmal's a veteran, as far as I'm concerned. But when he arrived in this country, he arrived- to San Francisco to find no one there to greet him at the airport. And having spent his life savings buying the one-way plane tickets that got him and his family to the United States in time for him to be able to clear customs before his visa expired. Because it, it, typically when we give these people visas, the visas are good for six months. In Ajmal's case, they were good for four days. We basically dared him to get out of Afghanistan in time. Because if you don't clear customs by the expiration date listed on your visa, they actually deport you and send you back that night. Ajmal's exp- was given, Ajmal was given his visa on the 28th of December, 2013, and his visa expired on the 1st of January, 2014, meaning he had till midnight somewhere in the continental United States 
of New Year's Eve going into New Year's Day to clear customs. He cleared customs at 11.29 p.m. in San Francisco with 31 minutes to spare. He gets out into the baggage claim area. There's no one there to greet him except the San Francisco airport police officer. And when Ajmal explained his predicament to the guy and said, look, we don't know where to go. No one's waiting for us. The guy said, I don't know how to help you other than to say the majority of the homeless shelters are this way. And he pointed them in the direction of the 101 freeway. And Ajmal, his wife, his four-year-old son, and his two-year-old daughter walked up the 101 freeway and spent the next five days homeless on the streets of San Francisco until we found them on Fulton Street and paid for them to get on plane tickets and brought them out to the D.C. area where Janice, who had just himself arrived a couple of months prior, took them in for a month until we could find them a place to live and eventually go on to furnish that place and got Ajmal his first job in a car. Ajmal has now since gone from starting out washing cars at a car, car wash his first week in America once he got settled in D.C. He already had a job. He went from doing that to delivering pizzas for Domino's. Then he delivered packages. Then he found out he could make more money selling cars. He ended up becoming car salesman of uh, like the quarter um, for two quarters in a row at a Ford dealership in Fairfax, Virginia, until he realized he could make more money selling houses. And he just passed his real estate license exam. So now he has a license to sell real estate. This is all in a guy who's been here two years. He's a go-getter. And he started out homeless, right? So that's these are the type of people we're talking about. They don't want to be on the government tit. Right, they don't want to be on uh, on public support, and they certainly don't want our charity. They just simply want a fair shot at the American dream. And then I challenge anyone to doubt them about their ability to achieve it. Ajmal is going to be a millionaire within a decade, the way he's going. Right? Um, well, when once we did that for Ajmal, things just blossomed, and we started getting more media and more attention, which meant more resources and support came in, and this continued to be this labor of love until. One day, August 2014, at this point, I'm a management consultant at Deloitte. I'm doing this on my weekends. Every weekend, Janice and I would go rent a U-Haul with Ashmal and drive around the greater D.C. area and pick up donated furniture and deliver it to recently arrived families. When I got an email from a guy writing me from Kabul, and he had been a translator for the U.S. Army for seven years, and he was writing to tell me that him and his family had made it to America that previous January, 2014, and they had been resettled in these this ghetto north of D.C. in Southern Maryland called, um, this neighborhood called Riverdale, Maryland. And what ended up happening was is essentially they had been put into housing that they couldn't afford by another organization that was trying to do good by them, but after dumping them into this slum home that was charging them an exorbitant rate, didn't do anything else for them. And if you tried to call the caseworker to talk to them about the family's predicament, you, you got a voicemail that was too full to receive any new messages but if you tried to make an in-person meeting, you were told that because you didn't make an appointment over the phone, they wouldn't see you. I mean, what a wonderful catch-22 that is. And so the inevitable happened. That three months after the family had arrived in the, D in the D.C. area, they had run out of money and they got evicted. And they spent the next three months begging, panhandling, so they could buy four one-way plane tickets back to Afghanistan. And the gentleman, the Potter Familius, was writing me from Kabul to tell me that they had been home for three weeks when um, the Taliban had caught up with them and sent them what's called a night letter, which is a letter that's basically nailed to their front door in the middle of the night. And the letter said this. It said, Dear so-and-so, we know you were an American translator. We know you've since been to the United States. We also know that you've returned. So the old intel guy in me, first off, lets me know that they either have somebody inside Afghan government feeding them information about entry and exits, right? 
or they have a, a really good spotter network inside Kabul when they can identify former translators and when they get back to country. And so they say, look, what you don't know is that while you were gone, we held a trial and we tried you in abstentia and we found you guilty of being an apostate and you've been sentenced to death. You have two options. You can either turn yourself in to be executed and we'll absolve your wife and your kids and the rest of your family of your sins, or we're going to hunt you down and kill every single last one of you like the dogs that you are. And this guy was ready to ask me if, if I couldn't help him and his family get back to America and take care of him like the veterans that they actually are. I couldn't believe that someone would choose to go home to it inevitably seemed like a death sentence for me. So I called up Janice, the guy that saved my life, and I said, brother, why would anybody do this? And without missing a beat, he said, well, you know, brother, at least there the grave is free. When that became someone's mental calculus, I realized that this could no longer just be a labor of love that we had to professionalize. So I, I quit my job at Deloitte the next day, and I've been doing this full time ever since. Um, our goal is simple. We have the seven years. I told you the first part, because the enemy gets a vote. They're hunting these people down, and I think within seven years, simply put, if we haven't saved them all at that point, they'll all be dead. But the other reason why we have to do it within seven to 10 years is that 10 years from now, the amount of time that'll have passed between 9-11 and that moment will be the exact same amount of time that passed from the end of the Vietnam War to 9-11. And simply put, I think we'll be on to the next crisis, and we'll have lost the attention of the American people. And this is a never again moment, Right? We either get this right this one time because we only have one opportunity or this becomes the next Vietnam. And I've met too many Nam vets who've looked me in the eye and told me about the half century of moral injury that they've lived with having not kept the promise to the Vietnamese that stood with us. That's going to befall our generation of veterans if we don't take care of this now. The opportunity that's golden is right now is that this hasn't occurred yet. And all that we have to do to prevent it from happening is have the courage and conviction to do the right thing. So for your listeners that are out there who wants to help out, we could use all the help in the world. Like we said, we're trying to open up a, a new chapter in Pittsburgh. We're, we're hoping to do that soon. We're also in Boston. You've got eight cities, right? Eight cities. Can you list all of them? Boston, Washington, D.C., Rochester, New York, Chicago, Illinois, Denver, Colorado, San Diego, California, C San Francisco, California, and Omaha, Nebraska. We're hoping to open up in Seattle, Austin, Pittsburgh, at least those three cities this year, and, and hopefully Sacramento, at least those four, with maybe others along the way. Um, for those who are interested in helping out, they can go to nooneleft.org, N-O-O-N-E-L-E-F-T.org. Um, you can sign up to join our mailing list, to volunteer. Um, you know, We need all the help in the world we can get. We don't take a dime of government money. This is all privately funded. Um, which means, you know, you're going to be contributing to helping our country keep its promise. I, I argue that there's no greater act an American make right now uh, in support of the war effort than this, other than to join and serve our nation's military when, when we need you the most. So let's talk about the executive order yep. banning immigrant refugees from uh, the seven nations. How has that affected Iraqi interpreters on their way over? Thankfully now, <laughs> two weeks after this fiasco started, um, because it was almost two weeks ago to the day that the leaked executive order dropped and we kind of got an idea of what we were going to be working with. So we've been, we had a couple of days to prepare a response. Thank God. I can't imagine how it would have been, how it was already difficult enough with, you know, 72 hours to prepare a response. I can't imagine how much more difficult it would have been if they had just dropped the executive order unannounced. Um, the practical effect has been this until they, came up with the exemption for Iraqis, which was, again, done after the fact, after all of the uproar that we as an organization and others, Vets for American Ideals, the International Refugee Assistance Project, these are two of our co 
sort of our, our partners in all of this, they also help raise a pretty significant stink um, to members of the government and Congress. You know, we finally got an exemption three days afterwards for Iraqis. But in those first three days, 60, 60 of our clients who are Iraqis got stopped in transit to the United States and turned back to Iraq. Two of our clients got stopped at the border and detained. One of them put into handcuffs. He's an American veteran. He's coming home forever. And the first thing we did was handcuff him. I would also note that once that guy got released from detention, he basically said, no harm, no foul. He's just happy to be here. Like he's so just relieved to be here and like just thrilled at the opportunity that he completely can dismiss how unwelcoming we were of him. Where, you know, when we first showed up in his neck of the world, they offered food and they offered, you know, tea and they welcomed us. Even if they were skeptical, they still welcomed us, certainly without handcuffs. Not a good first impression. But let's talk about those 60 Iraqis because a lot of your people might be thinking, okay, so what? They were inconvenienced? Imagine if you were moving to a new country for the first time forever. What would you do? You'd quit your job. You'd sell your house. You'd sell your shit, right? You might love your couch. Chances are you're not bringing your couch across the ocean with you, right? And if you have children, you'd disenroll them and take them out of school. You'd say your goodbyes. All of these people did these things. And why? Because they're being hunted by the very people we asked them to help us stand and fight. In many of these cases, they were on, like one guy was on the plane in Turkey. They had pulled away from the gate. They were 10 minutes away from takeoff when they were told they had to go back to the gate Turkish police got on the plane, put him and his family in handcuffs to include his children, forcibly removed them from the flight, and as he put that, sent them home back to Iraq like criminals. Now they're going back to a country where they don't have a house because they sold it, they don't have possessions, they're all gone, they're not employed because they quit all their jobs, they have nowhere to go, the very people that are hunting them are still hunting them, right? And they now have no reasonable path to safety and didn't know what was going to happen next. That guy is now in the United States, by the way. He went and visited the Statue of Liberty the day before you and I taped this program. And he got to go there. And he now feels like our country lived up and kept its promise. That's what we're trying to do, is to keep our nation's promise to these veterans. That's why the last thing I think I should mention is we're not trying to get Congress to pass the No One Left Behind Act. The act would codify into law the exemption for SIVs from any future immigration ban. It would order the State Department to expedite the processing of the 13,000 visas that remain in processing in the backlog that have been, in some cases, there since 2010. So for seven years, just having an application looked at over and over again without you know, rendering a decision, it's time we start giving some of these people the yeas and nays that they quite frankly deserve to know. Because if it is a no and we're not going to keep our promise to that person, they need to probably make alternative plans because you know, they, they don't have the, the, oper- the day a day, you know, they don't have an additional day to wait for us to get off of our asses. And then I think most importantly, what we want this to do is we want it so that um, there's no more cap on the visa. I mean, right now, not in addition to having to have served and met the service criteria, they also have to win a visa lottery, which is just bullshit, right? It should be if you serve, you earn the visa, period, the end, right? And then finally, we want them to be declared to be honorary veterans. Um, something we did at the end of World War II There were a quarter million Filipinos who fought with our armed forces in the South Pacific. Not only did we declare them to be veterans, we gave them VA benefits. We also selfishly took away those benefits for most of their lives and only gave them back to them when most of them were either on their deathbeds or had already passed away at the end of their lives. But we still did it. 
at one point we actually declared them to be veterans and decided they were deserving of benefits. I'm saying with this population, don't even you don't have to worry about giving them access to the VA. I figure that's a bridge too far with our current leadership in, in Washington. But what about at least declaring them to be honorary veterans so that when I go to an organization like the Walmart Foundation and say, hey, can you help these people out? Walmart right now will tell me, we love what you're doing. But the problem is, is that the people you're assisting aren't technically veterans, they're refugees. You're really helping out refugees. A veteran is a legal thing. And our funding for veterans has been raised from people who think they're giving money to legally people who are declared to be veterans. So they, they decline to assist. Then you go and you ask people who fund refugees for help, and they tell you, well, these people aren't really refugees. They're, they're more veterans, right? So shouldn't veterans issues fund this? And they basically, both sides point the finger at each other and say, you fund it. Well, now we could declare them to be honorary veterans, and that would open up a world of support to these people. And imagine all the employers then who would, you know, take pride in knowing that they were employing a former veteran. I just think it's time this country recognized these people for the service they provided, because quite frankly, they've done more for this country than most of the people who were privileged enough to have been born here. These people have earned their citizenship. And I think it's safe to say, regardless of political leanings or affiliation, veterans from both sides are supportive of this, right? Yeah, we did a, we, we ran a, a poll done by the University of Southern California School for Public Policy and uh, of veterans, of post 9-11 veterans. 99% of respondents were in favor of this program. The 1% who were not in favor, uh, simply put, just didn't have an opinion on the matter. There weren't dissenting views. One last time, what's the website if someone wants to help? Nooneleft.org, N-O-O-N-E-L-E-F-T.org. We could use all the help in the world. Please like us. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Well, thanks for your time, Matt, Executive Director of No One Left Behind. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Longest War with Matt Zeller from No One Left Behind. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review. Or you can find us on your favorite podcasting app.